This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is March 4th, 2021, and this is episode 229. I'm Strat And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, John Horgan moves ahead with a dam, and at the same time, he is unleashing the legislative floodwaters with a raft of new bills. You're really leaning into this, aren't you? I came up with something and just had to go with it. Follow the flow, as it were. Thank you to the 99 people who contribute to the show every month. This is your monthly reminder that you should update your payment settings if your credit card recently expired, as we're down a couple from last week. Support the show at patreon.com slash politicoast. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. Let's jump into our first segment. It'll be a sight to see. Sight see is back in the news. Remember that? Yeah, how could I forget? It's been the uh, perennial major project of at least my time in PC since I moved back in, what, 2014? Well, and it's even more mega, it turns out now. We got an update at the end of last week from the Premier and the Jobs Minister is it Jobsman? No, from we got an update last week from the Premier and the, what's his full title? The Minister of Mines, Energy, and Decarbonization? Something like that. Basically, the province wanted to update us on the recent bevy of reports they've received, a couple of geotechnical ones, as well as some cost analysis to try to figure out, is this still a good decision to move forward. There's been a lot of rumors and criticism of the dam. News out of the construction has not been going great. There's been a lot of geotechnical issues. And I think the critics are starting to line up and say, where are we at? Is this still this like marginally good investment that we were told it was two, two three years ago when the NDP basically finish the BCUC report? And the answer is, it's an even bigger sunk cost fallacy now. Yeah, so we hinted at this last week because they'd announced that they were going to announce this, but hadn't really given much indication when we were recording. Last week, Friday rolled around, this came out. I think they definitely tried to put it in before a weekend. It does not feel like the government really wants to be talking about this at all particularly given that the NDP has had to change their direction slightly from opposition to government. So the project was originally slated to cost $8.775 billion when it was thought up in 2014 and approved. That budget had increased when the BCUC report came out a few years ago. It is now up to almost $16 billion. And there's a bunch of asterisks and unknowns on there that could see it go even farther. I'll throw a link in the show notes to a piece by Vaughn Palmer, who's doing some detailed digging into all of the announcements and where the money is going. And there's still a lot of unknowns in the development of this. So we could see this go higher. Some of the new cost overruns are being attributed to geotechnical delays and COVID-19 construction slowdowns. So the construction on the project had to almost stop for two or three months or significantly slow down when the pandemic first broke a year ago. And then it turns out that one of the sides of the dam is not as stable as expected. And now a number of engineering reports have come out that have basically said they need to dig extra concrete piles. Horgan described the project as suffering from what he called an engineering bias, i.e., there's no problem that can't be overcome as long as we engineer the hell out of it. So cost overruns on big mega projects aren't unheard of. In fact, they're pretty common. 
what does set this apart is the magnitude. It's been a while since I've looked into this, but the number I recall is about 20% is a typical overrun, which if you're consistently off by 20%, you probably need to get better at estimating stuff. But regardless, some slippage in budget is fairly common. 16 billion is excessive for sure. Nevertheless, there are real costs with Terminate, not just the sunk costs that you've alluded to already, but several billion dollars in remediation work to basically restore the site should the project be cancelled. So it's not the case that cancellation costs are all just past money spent. It would incur significant future costs as well, and that's definitely something that would be weighing on the government because nobody wants to spend several billions of dollars to undo a bunch of work they've spent billions of dollars doing. Yeah, the province estimates that going forward and finishing this dam will mean that all BC Hydro ratepayers, pretty much everyone in the province, will see an additional 3% on their hydro bills for the next decade. Works out to about $32 a customer per year. Terminating the project would cost overall $10 billion, and all of that would get dumped on BC Hydro's books, which would mean an increase to rates of 26% over 10 years, or $216 a year. Yeah, it, it becomes a problem when you don't actually have any revenue to offset that, which you would for uh, a completed dam. Uh, terminating it could also put the province's credit rating at risk, since all the international financing agencies would look at us and go, you just wrote off $10 billion? That seems like a bad decision. And BC Hydro would suddenly become a net deficit crown corporation as opposed to one that is largely self-financing. You know, BC Hydro would be the new ICBC. Yeah, so I, I can see why the government wants to avoid that. And it's not the only major project in Canada that's facing significant cost overruns. We haven't really talked about this yet, but I don't know, maybe next week or sometime soon, we'll dig into the what's happened with the national shipbuilding strategy because that is also running into significant problems. It actually makes Site C look like a uh, almost cheap project by comparison. So there are definitely some broader organizational challenges that Canada has with this. And it, if we want to actually not just build dams, but build all the other stuff we need from that will be government funded, whether it's local transit infrastructure or renewable energy, but what people tip, more typically think when they say renewable energy, all of that, like, at some point, the governments are going to have to get better at the actual project management side of this. And we're probably not going to fit that on this project, especially at this stage, but it will no doubt be a challenge that going forward and one that hopefully governments get a lot more serious about addressing. That That's project management difficulty is really borne out in a piece, another piece by Vaughn Palmer that I read through where he digs into one of the reports that was released on Friday with this, where it talks about a specific meeting back in September, actually September 18th, just a few days before the snap election was called, like the Friday before the Monday when it was called. And at that meeting, Ernst and Young, who were brought on as an independent voice, an independent auditor to look at all of this stuff happening and try to make better advice to the project was cut out of the meeting, essentially. They were supposed to do a presentation, but then it's unclear who, but they were denied the ability to even show their slides because of the dysfunction between the various stakeholders at the meeting, including the BC Hydro board. It's just a mess, and that kind of issue is what's raised by some of the reports that were just released as, this needs to get under control because this is a very big project and there's a lot of money here. Yeah, I'm, I'm more concerned about the project management side than the geotechnical challenges they run into. Not entirely surprising, given everything here, that a project of this scope with the various limitations on what you can know ahead of time before getting the work underway on this 
there was always a risk there was going to be something that would come up on this. They identified the problem early on because they were continually monitoring it. They, they brought in outside experts to, to address it. I haven't fully dug into the report. and I'm not going to be in a position to second guess them, but from my from the knowledge I do have, their proposals seem reasonable and something that is going to cost money, but is not likely to be a big deal overall in here. The bigger problems, everything else that seems to be going on with this and the other costs that aren't directly associated with the foundation work, because any real big project, you're pro- there's a decent chance you're going to encounter something unexpected on, on the job site that the initial surveys didn't catch, particularly on the geotechnical side where you, because you can't just excavate the entire job site to look at everything underground, there will be some gaps in the knowledge. Whereas on the project management side, it appears to be a bunch of other stuff where budgets have slipped and that's not nearly as good. And then there's also the concerning parts around the meeting you were discussing there, decisions by the previous government that skipped a couple steps with the uh, Utilities Commission. So overall, this to me is more concerning on a management side than a technical side. Yeah, and I think given the numbers we're talk- we were talking about in terms of how it will impact ratepayers and the province, it's hard to justify killing it at this point. It needs to be cleaned up. The chance to walk away from this might have been following the BCUC report just after the NDP was elected, but even that was on the razor's edge. The NDP made their decision and we're stuck with it now. It's their decision. It's the NDP's dam as much it is as it is Christy Clark and the BC Liberals dam. But the inability to be more transparent about what's going on with this should be concerning to most British Columbians. There is not a full cost accounting of why this is overrunning and people deserve that. And that, none of this has even addressed the ongoing treaty claim by the West Moberly First Nation that's pending before the courts and some of the other people who are whose lands are going to be flooded in that area. So there's still some challenges with that that haven't been addressed, but especially for a government that has committed itself to reconciliation. Yeah. Well, they've also committed themselves to a clean BC electrification of the economy. And that is the other thing here is the budget overruns are very concerning. It's going to have impacts on ratepayers for sure that ideally would have been, that should have been avoided uh, with better handling of this. Nevertheless, we are going to, in 10, 20 years time, as we move away from fossil fuels, we will just be consuming a whole lot more energy as will our neighboring provinces and states. And there will likely be a role for large additions of baseload power in the kind of northwestern corner of the continent that Sightsee can be a useful addition to. So I don't, I like the overall idea of the project. I'm concerned about the various aspects of it, but. Given where we are, I, th- I think the government's made the right call. Although that green lining to the project is a little bit skewed by the fact the I think it was that last BCUC report that I keep referencing, did look at alternate approaches. Like, what if we spent this money or the money we could save, the little bit of money we could save by canceling it then on other green energies, wind, offshore, or offshore wind, etc. And it seemed like it wasn't 100% sure, but there was a possibility there that could have been as useful. Like the original point of Site C was to provide energy for LNG expansion as well, in part. So which kind of works against our climate goal. It's a mess. I do hope that we can use this for good if it's if we're going to be stuck with it, as it looks like we are. From the northeast corner to the southwest, let's head to Victoria for the re- resuming of the legislative session and the 
bunch of bills that have been introduced over the last couple of days. Yeah, this is a continuation of the session that started in December, just after the results of the election came in. It's interesting, the spring sessions are often slightly more quiet in the legislature as there's a lot of estimates and the budget and a throne speech to debate. So that just takes up a lot of time. And yet this week we saw seven bills put forward in just a few days, ranging from gun control to ICBC to local elections changes to an inter-money bill. Some interesting stuff in here, largely ticking off the NDP's campaign promises, I think. Maybe let's just go through the bills numerically, talking more about the ones that I think are more interesting. Sound good? Sure. So starting with Bill 4, because the first three were ones passed in the spring, or in the in, because the first three were passed in December, except Bill 1, the Act to Ensure the Supremacy of Parliament, as is always put there. Bill 4, the Firearm Violence Prevention Act, introduced by the Honorable Mike Farnworth on March 3rd, you love for jurisdiction in this country. How do you feel about the BC government introducing a gun control bill? So guns are a federal jurisdiction. We talked, what was it, two weeks ago when the Liberals announced their big gun control push or medium, it's not even really a big one. They're like medium size, small to medium sized gun control push on that. And I, I think we're both fairly negative on it in the sense that it isn't doing the sort of thing that would need to be done to really actually make a dent in gun crime. And I feel the same way looking at the details on this one. So the press release about it, it starts off talking about penalizing drivers who transport illegal firearms and authorizing the impounding of vehicles used to transport illegal firearms or flee police. Which, I don't know, does anyone really think the problem we have in BC is we don't have easy enough civil asset forfeiture? It's one of those situations where the province wants to be seen doing something and they don't have a lot of wit. Like they can't write the criminal code that is a federal bill and they can't set that, but they can set motor vehicle infractions. And so here's a motor vehicle infraction of driving around with an illegal gun. Having an illegal gun is already illegal, but driving with it is now doubly illegal. Well, does it... I can't recall what the criminal code penalty is for possession of an illegal firearm, but I believe it's a couple of years in jail. Does anyone think that a person risking a couple of years in jail is going to decide not to have carry an illegal firearm with them just because they'll also lose their vehicle? It doesn't really make a huge amount of sense to me as a mechanism that actually would reduce people's willingness to break to the law or, or transport illegal firearms. Like, we already have you know, a pretty strict federal system when it comes to firearms, and it's already illegal to do a bunch of this stuff. So why add another layer to it? Why add a penalty onto it that isn't likely to actually deter anyone? And... I haven't actually looked at the adapt word in language, but like a big problem with the civil asset forfeiture system is you don't actually have to be convicted of a crime for the government to seize your property. And that's a pretty big due process problem that this just risks exacerbating. Let's say the police arrest someone on it, they, but they can't actually make the case or for whatever reason, the person doesn't actually get convicted. Like, should they lose their vehicle in that case? Like, doesn't seem right to me if there's not actually a, a criminal conviction that they'd be punished for violating for what it would is effectively a criminal act. No disagreement here. Maybe the one knock-on effect of this is you can't have a drive-by shooting if you've taken someone's car. But again, this is targeting. Yeah, but something do, that I'm not convinced is a big issue in BC. Do, do you which think brings that brings me to the second point of the 
bill, which is to ban guns in schools and hospitals. Just on that last thing, does anyone really think that attempted murder is not, or someone isn't willing to add uh, theft of a motor vehicle to an attempted murder charge? Like, it's not going to do anything good, I, I don't, or not really going to help anything. But yeah, the next thing is prevent real or imitation firearms in schools and hospitals. You already can't have a firearm in those places, so once again, this is just a dumb, needless duplication of an existing federal law, except for the imitation firearms, which I don't Like, I hear every now and then the police tell people not to take imitation firearms places, but is that really actually a significant problem or something that would make people safer by not having those? be allowed in a hospital. We will also make people safer by banning the sale of low-velocity guns to youth. Now, I'm less familiar with the terminology. I'm assuming this is like air guns? I am actually not sure on that. So the, I believe the federal laws have a minimum muzzle velocity that's needed before it falls under the firearm it's at, which I would presume in this case would be covering guns that have muzzle velocities below that amount, but are still a, a firearm in every other sense. I, I don't think it's a big... I, admittedly, I don't have a great idea of how big a section of the gun market that is, but it's probably not a significant slice of it. But because that wouldn't be covered by the federal firearms act if it's below a, a certain muzzle velocity... I could see how it would, how you could have better access to it. And as a result, this one actually maybe makes the most sense. Even if I, when I don't think there's been a huge problem with it, there's at least a section of existing rules that I could see not being covered here where it, it makes sense to extend some coverage. When I Google low velocity guns, it mostly brings up artillery cannons, which I have to think is not a pressing issue in BC. The, the youth should the not youth. have artillery. That's the firearms bill. <laughs> no cannons for kids. Next up, Bill 5, the Insurance Corporation Amendment Act of 2021, also a Mike Farnworth bill, will create the ICBC Fairness Officer. This is one of the promises from the election, and I believe even predating that, this is part of the move to enhanced care, no-fault insurance, is that ICBC will have a fairness officer who will be the person you can complain to if ICBC has been unfair to you. Uh, uh, seems reasonable. I, I don't really have much of an opinion on this one. Yeah, it's probably good that there's an additional process people can take advantage of an additional point of contact to to address any issues but i expect this is going to be entirely uncontroversial and just pass without much uh coverage or discussion or anything or political intrigue probably equally uncontroversial is bill six the homeowner amendment the homeowner grant amendment act introduced by minister selena robinson this simply takes the application process for the homeowner grants, the property tax giveaways to homeowners, which works out to $570 for people in Metrovan and more money for people outside Metrovan. Instead of applying to your local municipality, you'll just apply to a central database run by the province, which I think makes a lot more sense because, well, Vancouver and Burnaby can probably run a pretty good website for this. I'm not sure about Puscoop or uh, Zebelos. Of course, it, it's not a we good get rid of the grant, right? Yeah, it's not a good policy having this homeowner grant. Is this because it's politically popular, even though it makes no sense of all the various groups within the province to give a grant to people who are almost certainly wealthier and better off than average, particularly in places like Metro Vancouver where house prices have appreciated a lot. So anyone who bought more than a couple of years ago has, has seen significant wealth increases 
as a result. So it just doesn't make a huge amount of sense. The counter argument is always, what about senior citizens who would lose their homes because they can't pay the property taxes, which isn't really an issue because there's deferral mechanisms for seniors. So they're not burdened anyway. Also, our property taxes are significantly lower in Vancouver than many cities across Canada. Like half as much in some cases. Yeah, it, it's just... I don't know, we, we say this every time it comes up. It, it It's not the policy that any want likes, but it's going to persist forever unless it gets rolled into an, another program at some point in the future that basically keeps paying the people it's already paying with that and just becomes, I don't know, like a general home grant or something tying in for renters as well. But it's going to persist. So if it is, yeah, it makes more sense to have a central administration done by the province rather than every jurisdiction doing it themselves, especially these small places that don't have a huge amount of staff to process this sort of thing. If they're not going to pass good policy, at least make it a little less worse. So I guess it's a, I don't want to say good bill, but not terrible either. It's one of those technocratic ones that it's hard to disagree with. But, I, mean, I don't think the technocrats would like, like this, the underlying program that much at all. But yeah, it's not a bad tweet. Next up, Bill 7 was actually the first of the new bills to be introduced because sometimes they like to do them out of order. This was the Tenancy Statutes Amendment Act brought in by Minister of Housing David Eby. This is the bill that extends the rent freeze that was put in place last year to the end of 2021 and will cap future rent increases to inflation. It will also stop illegal rent evictions and simplify the dispute resolution process for disputes between tenants and landlords, as well as a few other more technical changes. So I've never been a particularly big fan of rent control. It causes a lot of second and third order problems in the housing space that are actually quite harmful, including to the people that the the policy in theory protects. But as a a short-term crisis measure, yeah, it's better than not having such a policy in place. I'm slightly concerned that this is going to just become an a thing the NDP government does every year, extend it out a little further for various reasons. Like It's not hard to look at the high rents and decide, oh no, we haven't really solved the housing problem yet, so we just need to keep it one more year. I don't know that's for sure, but it's it's the concern I have by seeing more extensions on this. Hopefully it'll be the last one and we can address the the rental problems through uh, more effective means. But as long as the pandemic's going on, it's, like I said, better than the alternative and helps people stay put because it's it's not great trying to look for a place during a pandemic or moving. So keep, keeping that to a minimum has uh, benefits beyond the, the normal ones. I'd be surprised if there was another rent freeze next year. This bill does include a cap on allowable rent increases to inflation. I think in the past it was generally like inflation plus a couple percent. So, so when the NDP took over government, I believe it was inflation plus 2%. It might have been plus 2.5%, but they dropped that down to inflation. So this really is just a re-announcement of a previous policy. Um, they, it's, it's not a new one here if the capping rent for increases at inflation. In terms of the other stuff in the bill, it mostly seems reasonable. Having improvements in the system is generally good. Just to clarify, for the rent evictions, this is the idea that someone is renting a place and the landlord comes along and says, this is in total disrepair. I need to update. I want to update my property. You need to move out. I'm close. You know, I'm evicting you can apply as a new tenant after i'm done all these renovation all, all these renovations and there are legitimate renovations where for example the building is 
almost uninhabitable and it does need major renovations. And then there's like questionable ones where perhaps they just change a few things and then try to rent it for a significant amount more. So this has been criticized by a lot of tenants organizations. The change will require landlords to apply to the residential tenancy branch before terminating a tenancy for the purpose of renovating. This will have to mean that the landlords will have to prove that the renovations planned are actually substantial and require the unit to be vacant. So if it's a minor renovation where someone could still be living there, then that per tenant can't be kicked out. This, I think, has been like this entire bill has been given the stamp by both tenants organizations and I think Landlord BC. So there's not a lot of people who are like, yeah, we should be able to screw tenants over. They exist, of course, but yeah, the, like you said, I think this is a pretty that the reasonable press step. release did have a favorable quote from the CEO of Landlord BC. So yeah, it's one of those things where the devil's going to be in the details in terms of the actual implementation, but it, as long as it's not catch and legitimate upkeep in there that really is needed it's it's a good move i think that all on tenancy next up bill eight is the finance statutes amendment act of 2021 introduced by minister selena robinson this is a pretty wonky bill and a pretty preliminary one it seems so this one gives the bc financial services authority some additional authority as the province moves to try to make it the single regulator of the entire real estate industry. Right now, real estate is largely governed by the Real Estate Council of British Columbia and the Office of the Superintendent of Real Estate. Those two agencies, the province has promised to bring together so that we can have a simpler, more transparent oversight of the real estate and financial service industry. I don't know enough about this at all, other than I'm going through the process of dealing with a lot of realtors and stuff. My realtor is great, but there's some sketchy stuff out there. And so I hope this helps. Yeah, there, there was a bunch of concerns over the past year, few years around practices in the real estate industry. It's probably good to centralize this all to help deal with that and at the very least help reassure people in general. I, I don't know enough about the finer details to spot if there's any problems in here with it, but as a general idea, you want people to be trusting of various professionals and people who play a fairly important role in terms of have, helping people buy homes. which is a major life decision, and, and you you want there to be public confidence in there, just as a general society thing. So if it helps move that along, there's no hidden poison pills that my lack of knowledge just didn't let me spot. Yeah, good. Which I, yeah, and doesn't seem to be any reason to think there would be in this case. Bill 9, the Local Election Statutes Amendment Act of 2021, was introduced by Minister Josie Osborne. This is a number of changes to how local elections will be financed in BC. It's trying to align local financing rules with provincial ones and is allegedly following requests from UBCM and the municipalities themselves. So probably overall pretty good steps to take. Just running through them quickly, the pre-campaign period is created, which will increase the regulation of election advertising from 29 days to 89. There will be a limit on sponsorship contributions to municipal candidates of $1,200, which matches the provincial amount. Electoral organizations, municipal political parties like one city or the NPA in Vancouver, a few other cities have them, but they're not everywhere. They will have to register with Elections BC and provide annual financial reports in the same way provincial political parties do. There will be a ban on these elector organizations, these parties, from accepting non-campaign contributions for operational expenses. So rather than taking $1,200 for a campaign contribution, but then having a pot that just funds your non-election year expenses, you now only have campaign contributions, which simplifies it. 
but also limits how much money they can take in. Elections BC will be given new election. Elections BC will be given new investigative tools. And notably, all of these changes come into effect for the 2022 local elections. Any by-elections currently or happening before then will not be affected. Whole lot of stuff there. Scott, you follow local politics as well. What do you think? So the pre-campaign thing it, period is definitely good. It made no sense in the context of a fits election, which everybody knows the data four years in advance to have the twenty the immediate twenty nine days prior to it be under one set of rules and then the thirtieth day before being completely different. So you saw stuff in the last local elections where people would sp- there would be a bunch of spending on third party advertising right up to the the deadline when the period kicked in, which would then just get cut off so they didn't have to report it all. 89 days, I don't know why they didn't round up to 90, but for a nice round number, but there, there's probably some like Byzantine legal reason for that. But regardless, that, that seems fairly reasonable. I, I think election advertising more than three months out for anything but just general name recognition is probably not really going to do much one way or the other. Bringing in the, I think, more critical period, the six, previous 60 days to the vote makes a lot more sense um as is the need to register with elections bc i was actually surprised that local parties aren't a thing legally speaking they, they can be formed under like the societies act or just be an ad hoc group of people but the, there wasn't like a pre-existing legal framework that they easily slotted into so this seems good in that respect. The thing I'm a little confused on is the third party fundraising rules, which will also be at have the same $1,200 limit for, which it sounds good, but there are a bunch of those third party organizations that just do a lot of things that aren't campaign funding. Does this mean they need a separate fundraising system and fund that just goes into campaign related expenditures? and not any of their other operations. It's not really clear how that works for people in that role. Yeah, I've looked into some of that for the provincial elections, and it's complicated, right? Because of that exact issue where if you're a nonprofit or a union or I guess even a corporation, but I guess they wouldn't be spending... It gets complicated, so... I think the thing is, if you're spending a bunch of money, you have to essentially have a pot of money that is your election money. And if money is given to you to spend on election money, you have to flag it as such and you have to limit it to 1200 But if they just give you general money and your general money funds your election campaign, it's a little more fake. What I find these ten types of rules tend to do is to really chill smaller organizations who look at it and go this looks hard and scary and I don't want to get in trouble so we're just going to sit out the election and that's not great for our democracy yeah even though at the point of it yeah particularly the the low thresholds here as a general rule I think the value of money is overrated in politics to succeed, you absolutely need to have money. You just cannot run a campaign purely off volunteers with no spending and be successful. But there are plenty of cases where the person who spent less money ends up winning. And money tends to follow success. So candidates that are on the upswing pre-raising a bunch of money will generally start drawing in additional fundraising. It's hard to disentangle it a bit, but generally I think the power of money to swing elections is overrated. And if the third party election rules were say twice as high as they are now, really, or even three times higher, it really doesn't seem like it would 
do much in terms of changing actual votes, but it, it would allow more organizations to participate. So all of which to say, I this may or may not be ideal, but like for the reasons you raised, I wouldn't bother me if they'd done this a little different. Especially because the the rules are a little convoluted and whatnot for third parties. The one it's thing that's nice to have it match the provincial rules at the very least. Yeah, yeah. The, the one thing not touched here, which every I think BC Liberal listening to this will be screaming about, is the the rules around contributions of staff and human resources in local elections. That's a perennial complaint of parties that don't have backings from local unions on this and the, the bc ndp is never going to change this like if because it, it does benefit the people with they generally align with locally so it, it's probably would make it a little more fair but like it's it was never going to be in any bc ndp local legends rules so They'll all just have to wait for the next liberal government or whatever the party decides to rename itself. Just apparently that's a discussion for some reason. Well, the last bill to mention just in passing that was brought in is that Bill 10 is a supply bill that will fund the government between March 31st and the end of the session until the budget is properly brought in and passed presumably next month. The only other thing to mention from this first week of the legislature, I think, is there were two committees formed. One is just to appoint an auditor general, I believe. But the more interesting one is one that's going to be looking at election financing. And it seems to sound like it's going to be tasked with reviewing the future of the province's per vote subsidy for political parties. Now, this was brought in when the political financing rules were changed in BC to try to bridge parties between the previous big money days and the future of small grassroots donations. It was supposed to just fade away. But when you bring forward a committee to review it, it sounds like you might want to extend it indefinitely. I don't know that's what they plan to do, but I wonder. Yeah, I I generally think that small dollar donation-based fundraising models has some unintended consequences that aren't great for democracy. Like, it makes a lot of sense, if you, particularly if you really dislike big money, which people have plenty of good reasons to do so, to favor moving to small dollar donations. But it really does incentivize political parties to do everything they can to fire up those the base to keep the regular $20 coming in every couple weeks, which just, I don't think is particularly healthy for politics in general to try and run everything on maximum outrage all the time. So if a per vote subsidy helps offset that incentive a bit, maybe that'll be good. And I still think parties are going to be pushing as hard as they can to bring in every dollar they can, which means it might not be enough to fully get rid of that incentive. But if it has a marginal effect, it's still probably good. I didn't know which way you were going with that. I actually fully agree. So we'll keep our eye on the legislature over the coming weeks and see what else comes up. Moving on to quick takes. The BC Liberal Party, if that is what they will remain, has decided that they, sorry, the BC Liberal Party, if that is what they are to remain, has officially announced the leadership race to replace Andrew Wilkinson. Voting's going to take place from the 3rd to 5th of February 2022, with the winner announced on the 5th of February. Membership deadline is the 29th of December, with the candidate deadline being the 30th of November. It's a long leadership race, basically as long as they can stretch it out to. Yeah. It's a 
It's, we've had the debate about whether a short or a long one is a better idea. They went with long. We may not even know who the candidates are until the late in the year, but we'll try and talk to some of the candidates through the summer when we're always looking to get a few more interviews in. One thing that BC former BC Liberal insider and general conservative strategist Katie Merrifield pointed out on Twitter is one of the new rules announced is that a person cannot run who quote, whose approval to become a leadership contestant would likely bring the party into disrepute. And she wonders what the criteria for that potential future offense is since the leadership committee can basically just red light potential candidates. I don't, she played it as fairly controversial, but I feel like most parties have some version of this rule of, nah, we don't want you to actually run for us. Yeah, it, it, it can definitely be abused. We saw that locally here in 2018, but it also does make a lot of sense in cases where, yeah, there are people who want to run who absolutely should not be allowed to run for the general interest of the party, and parties don't owe anyone a spot on a ballot. It's they they are private organizations and they can set their own rules. And I, frankly, after what we've witnessed for the last four years down south, a little bit of institutional checks on that sort of thing is welcome. Of course, your risk is if you red light someone who's super popular, who thinks they can be super popular, they can go off and create a third party or fourth party or whatever and split the vote and tank it. That can also happen when you don't red light someone like Maxime Bernier, although he didn't end up really costing the Conservatives any votes in the last federal election. He just gave them a headache for months. So we'll see if anyone doesn't make the cut. Yeah, no, th this time they at least made sure not to put the announcement on the same day as the Super Bowl. Good on them for that. They snuck it in just a day earlier, which... <sighs> Still is probably not ideal. Yes, it's better than the day of, but yeah, maybe try and not have your leadership convention be the same week as a major event that I'm not a sports person, but apparently a lot of people here in BC pay attention to. Another thing people are paying attention to are their ICBC insurance rates and those were put into a little bit of question this week as the BC Supreme Court ruled that changes introduced by the government in the last couple of years to direct minor injury claims to the Civil Resolution Tribunal rather than let people adjudicate them in Supreme Court was on an unconstitutional infringement of claimants' rights to a fair trial. The CRT will no longer have to adjudicate minor injury claims. Individuals can choose to go there if they want, but people have the right to proper representation in court. This change that David Eby and the government had made was projected to save the ICBC $390 million, which is now uncertain. Eby has said people will still get their rebates and their savings projected with the no-fault enhanced care coverage and because of COVID-19 and people just not driving and getting into accidents last year. But this is a big question mark for some of their changes and a pretty big win for the Trial Lawyers Association. I still think it would have been wiser not to announce any rebates until the ICBC had been in the black for several years and no longer conjured the idea of a fiscal dumpster fire, particularly since, yeah, the, the talking point is it comes out of a different pot of money, but at the end of the day, like all money is fungible. It can slosh around an organization and like it's still less money ICBC has in the long run. But yeah, it's big win for the travelers. I'd I'd be surprised if the government doesn't appeal or come back with new legislation that like just tweaks things a little bit. This seems like a pretty big setback for it if left unaddressed. It was interesting that one of the key findings we can move on fairly quickly, but one of the key findings of Justice Hinkson's decision was that the government's claim that the courts were being overwhelmed by 
all these small minor injury claims didn't hold water. He said there was just not enough evidence prevent, presented to him that courts are being clogged up. Like very few claims actually do end up in courts. So what's the purpose of this? He put it back to the government and they didn't have a strong enough answer. I mean, so, uh, I don't know about that. The justice system does not move fast. And it is, like, the, the net story in here is about someone who has like a five, five or six year long case and something like a third of all civil claims file, filed, I think it was, in this, from what I was reading in the story, are from the insurance cases for automobiles. So like, it's still a pretty big section of cases, even if fewer of them end up in trial. And I've heard very few people suggest that the courts are a are sufficiently lax on their schedules that freeing up some resources wouldn't be a help overall. And also on the other side, like I don't know, I I'm not a fan of the idea of courts rather than elected governments being the ones to decide fiscal priorities. It, that that very much seems to be the sort of thing that should be part of a responsible government rather than a politically isolated court process. Yeah, so here it is. A third of new civil and family court cases are related to motor vehicles. Finally, let's talk about one person who's filed a new lawsuit after he won a pretty big case, Bryce Cassavant, who is a pretty, probably the most famous conservation officer in British Columbia. Is there another or conservation I, officer anyone could name? He's actually not a conservation officer, but he really wants to be. In 2015, he lost his job following his refusal to kill two orphan bear cubs and a lot of back and forth. He ended up winning at the BC Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada refused to hear the government's appeal. He's wanted to get his job back. He brought on Mary Polak, who is the BC Liberal Environment Minister when this all happened, to advocate for him to get his job back. She says she wasn't fully briefed on his situation at the time. But now he's also launched a lawsuit asking for his job and back pay of fifty to $75,000 a year so he can be a conservation officer again. And this is all just wild. Yeah, I don't know. Related to our previous item here, like a five-year-long court back and forth. Like I, I know the legal system's not fast, but there's got to be ways to bring down the the decision time and get resolution on this stuff quicker than that. That that's a big long-term structural challenge. I I don't even know what to say. I hope Casavant gets his job back. He seems like he's really passionate about conservation. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. Thank you.